The following is part of a seven-episode mini-series featuring a select group of 500 startup portfolio companies that participated in the Alibaba eFounders Initiative. The entrepreneurs, who were all from Southeast Asia, visited the Alibaba Business School campus in Hangzhou for 11 days earlier this year and were coached directly by Jack Ma and his team. Welcome to The Jay Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. This week's show guest is Wai Hong Fong, co-founder of StoreHub. StoreHub is a cloud-based store management system for SMEs. StoreHub combines iPad point of sales, inventory, and customer relationship management with enterprise features in the beautiful and simple user interface with the goal of making businesses awesome. Wai Hong, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jay. So uh, why don't you give the audience a little bit of background first? I'd like to uh, ask all entrepreneurs a little bit about themselves, their background, you know, what they sort of studied and how they came up to becoming an entrepreneur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there are two things about me growing up. Firstly, that I am a, I was very geeky when I was a kid. I think um, <laughs> I remember telling my mom when I was 11, or well, my mom telling me anyways, that uh, I told her I wanted to marry a computer uh, and be the world's <laughs> greatest hacker. When I grew up, um, so that was pretty much uh, my, my childhood ambition. Uh, so I was very, very, very geeky. Was always playing around with computers, tinkering. Got into a lot of trouble uh, hacking into the computers in sec- in, in high school oh because uh, they were charging us like five dollars an hour to to play uh, to use the computers. And you know when we were playing StarCraft back then, we were playing hours on, and uh, it was a lot of money for students to pay. So we, oh, sure. yeah. we broke the cash card system to do that. But there's all, there's all that stuff. Uh, that was my that, that was like in my, my early childhood. And then uh, I ended up uh, not getting my first preference at university. I wanted to do law and computer science as a double degree. Uh, but I didn't make the grade for law. Um, and I decided that I didn't want to just be a programmer for the rest of my life. So I didn't do computer science. And I, I ended up doing a a Bachelor of Arts in uh, Media and Communications and History and Philosophy of Science. Oh, interesting. So very, very uh, different from, I guess, what I anticipated. So they trained me to be a journalist and, uh, and a philosopher. Um, that, that was essentially uh, how I started out, uh, you know, in, in, the, in the early days. Wow, interesting. And then, uh, well, so, well, you know, I mean, that, those are all good skills. So first of all, um, you know, I, law is, uh, is, is a difficult one. I think it was Mike... I I went to business undergraduate school and I think it was like my worst grade of the entire my entire college career was law. So I knew I was going to be a lawyer. So I I, I can empathize with you there. Um, but you know, media is and and journalism media is is very important. And uh, it in the era that we're living in now, uh, basically, if you run a startup or even your own company or or your own brand or maybe your own podcast, I mean, it's all media is very important and it has a big impact. So I'm sure you have some. Uh, relevant uh, takeaways from your your studies there. So after university, uh, what did you set out to do? So fresh out of university, uh, you know, I always thought I was going to go work or do some marketing work or some, you know, PR work uh, in a digital or, you know, IT company, we used to call them back then. And um, 
but in the end, I you know what happened was my uncle uh, was like uh, running a retail business, and he was like, "Why don't you just come out and, and help me run, uh, you know, put mm. a few things up on eBay?" Uh, so that was essentially what I did, and one thing led to another, and we and we end up forming a business, just selling stuff online. Uh, this was in Melbourne, so I studied in Melbourne University, and uh, I ended up running an, an e-commerce business for the next five years after that. So didn't apply for any other jobs or never even sent out a resume or went for an interview, uh, just straight out of uni into an e-commerce business. And we grew that from uh, about $20,000 of stock to, to about $5 million of revenue in, in about four wow. years. Uh, so that was essentially what I did uh, as my first business, essentially. That's incredible. And it was all, it was basically built off of an eBay uh, store, an online store? Yeah, so we started out on eBay, but we eventually grew that into uh, you know, 12 different e-commerce sites uh, what we found was that selling stuff on eBay back then um, at least the brand new and expensive uh, stuff was really hard because of the uh, the brand connotation of eBay being you know second hand and old and used and also good right. quality but uh, you know we we dominated the way we, we did it was we dominated the search uh, results uh, with our own websites, right? So we were ranked number one for telescopes and binoculars and Swiss army knives and dancing oh, shoes wow. and all kinds of random stuff. They, they used to call us the niche e-commerce king uh, of Australia. So that wow. was essentially the, what we built the entire business upon. That's incredible. Can I ask what year this was? This was from 2007 up to 2012. Wow. Okay. So uh, this is interesting actually because... Uh, you're basically hitting like web 2.0 right around then but i guess uh you know i, I hear about i hear about stories like yours a lot about uh people that were sort somewhat early adopters into sort of the e-commerce and, and online space and, and ebay and this sort of thing yeah. and uh you know it's something that i think a lot of people kind of just did uh if you have some old stuff that you want to get rid of uh, and try to get some money off of it so you post on ebay but then i hear about a few stories like yours where you can actually scale a business quite successfully uh, by by you know tinkering around with that sort of thing, and I guess at the time uh, to to kind of get dominate the the ad space, uh, the search sorry the like Google AdWords and that sort of thing. I guess it wasn't as expensive back then that, than it is now, right? Yeah, I mean uh, you know the e-commerce goes through a bunch of different cycles, uh, and when a particular medium or, or I guess channel. Uh, it's inefficient, I guess, is the, is the way we would describe it. Uh, the cost of acquiring a customer uh, versus the, you know, guess the lifetime value or how much it costs to, you know, how much revenue you get from them is, is relatively low. If you know how to, I guess, uh, you know, run ads or, uh, you know, opt- optimize Google, uh, we, we did most of these things in-house and ourselves. And, and so, uh, because marketing agencies were charging a lot of money for, for, for doing something that they didn't really know what they were doing as well. They were kind of learning on the fly. Yeah. Um, and we realized that, hey, actually, this thing is not that hard to, to learn. And I guess that's where the, the geekiness and the, that media training, you know, we were trained to be to write like tremendously. Um, that really, really became very helpful back then to that's optimize and I guess gamify those platforms. Right. So like writing your own copy and, and marketing scripts and stuff like that. Absolutely. It's, yeah. I, you know, I, I, I kind of wish that I was in the in that game or even just dabbled in it back then, because right now it's like extremely sophisticated. It's, you know, like, oh, yeah, it's, <laughs> you, you can't just, you know, I, I kind of miss those days where you hear about, oh, I just threw up a website and all of a sudden I'm doing like all this traffic and, and all 
this stuff. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but it's, I mean, the, the, the reality of it, though, is uh, that back then, doing what we did was kind of wacky, right? Like, people, you know, uh, my, my family was like, oh, it's kind of cute that Wai Hong is doing that. And, you know, in the, in the first year, we did something like about uh, $300,000 of revenue. And everyone's like, oh, that's kind of cute that be able to, you know, kind of like turn around some, some revenue. And then and the next year, we did $1.8 million. So we 6 x the, the growth. And then people were like, whoa, what's going yeah. on here, right? Like, and the reality is that people didn't really understand like what was going on and what were the possibilities of eBay. You know, we were talking about the days when shopping carts were like a Zen card or OS commerce. And those things look like really, really bad. Yeah. Right? Those were like... Um, you know, and we, we we adopted Magento, which was at that time uh, really kick-ass in terms of its looks, right. but it took unoptimized, out of the box, 30 seconds to add a product to cart. <laughs> and so <laughs> the kind of work that we needed to do, so I managed to optimize it down to three seconds, nice. which by today's standards are like still abysmal, oh, sure. but back then, that was like awesome. So, you know, I, I think in every phase, every like, five, six, seven years, you know, we enter a, a, a time where when we push guys the boundaries of technology, it always seems kind of scary. It always seems kind of weird. And and, and, and I guess, it, but it rewards the people who try, right? I think that's that's essentially what, what we see anyway. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's uh, it's insane. The uh, you, you, you say 30 seconds and I was chuckling because uh, I, there was a time when that wasn't a long amount of wait to, to get something done online. And now it's like an eternity. <laughs> I mean, you could yeah. go through like five different pages. You just close windows and be like, okay, onto the next website, Google search and find the next one that comes up quicker. Um, so, well, thanks for the, thanks for the introduction. Introduction, um, can you? Okay, so let's let's move into uh, your entrepreneurial phase. So after you, I mean, you obviously started off entrepreneurial, uh, working with your uncle there and doing uh, very well, very good business uh, on eBay. How did you uh, progress from there? What was the next thing that you you worked on? Yeah, so uh, I, I kind of exited that company in uh, 2012 and decided that I was going to go learn Mandarin in China in Shanghai, uh, to be specific, mm. uh, just because uh, I am natively Chinese, but I could not speak Mandarin. Right. And so it's really embarrassing. So I decided to fix that. At the age of 26, uh, I moved to Shanghai and uh, I started ma- studied Mandarin and did some work for the Chinese government, traveled China. That was really awesome. Uh, and in my travels, I actually met a friend who was running a, a, a chain of lingerie retail stores. And he was just implemented a point of sale. And, you know, at that time, I was really passionate about e-commerce. I had all my experience there. Uh, and we dabbled a little bit in kind of like the offline, online kind of play. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a, a physical outlet as well in Melbourne. Um, but here in Shanghai, I was seeing this guy who was trying to run a, a retail business, trying to, you know, use systems to manage that better. But it, it was really, really bad. So I was like, hey, dude, you need to fix this. And I spoke to their developers and, and developers were telling me to go and train the staff to use it better instead. So I was like really frustrated. I was like, How, you know, <laughs> systems are built for people or not people for systems. Right. Um, and that was when the idea and, and I guess the, philosopher, the philosophizing about what the future of retail will look mm-hmm. like uh, started happening. I was, you know, and I was thinking about, you know, one day it would not be e-commerce and bricks and mortar. It would be just commerce, right? And wh- wh- where do we start? Where do we help? How do we help people like, well, like, like my friend, uh, offline retailers actually digitize, systemize, manage and grow their business with the kind of insights, analytics, um, and data that we were used to as an online retailer. Right. And, and that's where we started Storehub. I, I told everyone about the idea. 
Uh, and uh, eventually, I met my co-founder in Shanghai. Uh, and uh, she just had, had just left Microsoft at the time. She's a bit of a genius. So she's like, she won two national programming competitions in China mm. and like chairperson some of the women that work at Microsoft and, you know, all the star employees. I think she was on the, her testimonial was on the website and everything. Um, and she's just kind of left Microsoft trying to like figure out what's, what's the next thing. And, and we, we met and, uh, and I, I literally just talked about philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> I guess our <laughs> values and what I imagined the world was going to be, uh, and she bought into it, and that's when we started Storehub out of my apartment in Shanghai. Oh wow, that's awesome! Uh, okay, yeah. so so let, let, let's let's dig in now. Okay, so 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 tell us tell us about your philosophy and how uh, t- tell us give us the give us the you know the overview of of exactly what Storehub does. Uh, you know, I mean, has the concept uh, evolved since you guys first implemented it? Have you guys changed? strategies or anything or is it the exact same concept from what you were philosophizing with your uh, with your co-founder back in the day yeah well i think what's maybe about 70 or 80 percent of uh, a lot of the things we talked about still remain very relevant today uh the strategies and the markets that we're serving the pace at which we were growing all those were definitely not uh as we imagined it, it would be uh, it definitely took a lot longer for us to 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 really get off mm-hmm. the ground, and, and that has a lot to do with the the, the the startup ecosystem and startup climate here in Southeast Asia, and, if, and if with funding not being so easily available. Um, but essentially, the the philosophy was about the future of retail and, and where uh, you know where bricks and what is the role of bricks and mortar right. in a world where e-commerce is growing double digits year on year and taking the headlines everywhere. In a world where we experience in China today, that's like you know, 17, 18% of, of commerce is online, happens right. online, right? And here in Southeast Asia, we're still talking about 1%. 1%. And, uh, and, and there is a, you know, what, what, what happens as, as e-commerce continues to be more uh, prevalent? What happens when, when digital is just not just a separate world anymore, but it is completely a part of everyone's world where everyone has a mobile phone. So that's all that conversation around uh, what happens to consumer behavior? What happens to the, the mindset of running a business? And for us, fundamentally, the, the, the main thing was that we wanted to help bricks and mortar retailers to engage this new world. Uh, and that was what Storehub is about. Is we wanted to, by being the hub of the store, we're able to connect retailers, whether it's to their consumers in a more meaningful way or whether it's to their suppliers by making that whole supply chain better and easier. But the, the core essence of Storehub is that we want to be the hub of the store. And we want to help make those businesses, I guess in our words, awesome. Um, and the way we go about doing that is, is really to help them succeed in utilizing all the tools and all the channels to connect, to engage, to buy better, to sell better. But at the same time, we also want to, to kind of like bring that whole cool Apple Store effect into stores. So how do we enable experiences, whether that's through payments or through uh, you know being able to buy stuff that's not exactly physically in store, like you know buying online, picking up offline, or buying in store, having it delivered to you. There's just all that stuff, all these experiences that we are uh, you know have a vision to create uh, for a small bricks and mortar retailer. Wow. Okay. So that's interesting. So Storehub is now a solution from for uh, for both the sort of back end of the store, uh, including the front end, like the user side of things, or is it just the back end of the store? Yeah, so we started out with uh, with the iPad point of sale. Mm-hmm. So at that time when, when this idea was you know, for, it forming, we, we saw that there was this trend in the US where iPad and 
point of sales were taking off. Right. Uh, and we, we recognized that the point of sale is the most basic thing that every retailer starts with or needs at, you know, before they get involved with CRM or complex inventory management or even an e-commerce site, they all start with a point of sale. And so for us, the point of sale was an entry point uh, and that's where we start layering on all these other things. So once you solve you know, the, the, the fact that they have now a system in place instead of just pen and paper, we can start helping them with inventory management, with managing their customers and with e-commerce. Uh, but the point of sale was a starting point. So all our customers would use our point of sale and then we will continue to help them to, to get more advanced and to utilize more and more uh, of these other things that would enable them to, to create these experiences. I see. Okay, so the starting point is you, you say a uh, say a brick and mortar store comes to you and says, uh, you know, store hub, I need your help. So the first thing that you would do would would be to basically integrate these uh, iPad point of sale uh, type stations into their store. Pretty much. So we 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 built that ourselves and we 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 uh, coded that all up from scratch. I, in fact, I coded one third of the original MVP, um, <laughs> and uh, it, none of my code still remains in the system. Rest assured, because it's not. <laughs> but <laughs> I did do a bit of it, um, and uh, uh, and that's where we start. We we literally help them set up the iPad point of sale, and uh, and then we connect them up uh, with all the other things from from there. And so so the iPad point of sale that's that's the first sort of uh, connecting point, and then of course uh, on the back end you're collecting all the data and and this sort of thing. Now the type of store customers that you get i mean what what is your what is your sort of average typical type of uh, retail or brick and mortar store that would uh, that would come to you and say look i, I want i want to work together yeah so a good chunk of our customers are fashion boutiques mm. uh and uh, at least on the retail front uh we have some grocery stores and even pharmacies and uh i guess in retail in general it's fairly uh kind of like all over the place, you've got a whole bunch of different types of retailers out there. Uh, and then on the FMB front, we pretty much dominated the cafe uh, scene. And, uh, and the whole, we have a lot of quick service also, like bubble tea shops or, uh, you know, uh, guys that, that basically have uh, kind of like the whole order at the counter, pick up, you know, um, somewhere else kind of a, a workflow. So that's essentially those are the two main uh, customers that we focus on. Coming again from that retail background, uh, we chose to focus on building features that were, were very deeply useful for, for retailers specifically. So anything to do with stock management, inventory management, that's what we're really, really good at. Right. So if you're a, I'm just thinking, uh, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate here for a second. So if, if, I'm, yeah. a, if I'm a mom and pop a brick and mortar store and I have my retail space and my, my products uh, on the shelf here, and you know, let's say uh, you were to come and say, "Look, Jay, you can you can improve uh, you know everything uh, if you just start with this uh, this iPad point of sale." And you know, my pushback would be, "Well, you know, I, I have a I have a retail store. And, you know, the customer experience is they come in and they want to touch and feel the product. And why would they go to this uh, iPad uh, thing to to buy it instead of just picking it up or go trying it on in the?" You, you know, the fitting room or whatever, right? So what would you say to that sort of uh, counter-argument? Right. So uh, perhaps I just need to, to clarify again how, how a product works. So it's essentially, um, we don't, it's not a customer-facing product in-store. So it's more like a, a device that the, the store owner or the, or the store... Ah, right. Uh, okay. Okay, I got you. person will kind of use to manage uh, all that's happening. Would, would that change in the future? Possibly. Uh, but essentially, that's, that's why it's geared towards... Um, but I guess the question that people might ask would be like, you know, I'm a retail store. Why would I 
you know, needs an online presence. And well, maybe that would be an interesting question. But right now, no one's really asking that question. Everyone's kind of like really excited about going online, but they just don't know how. And that's the main problem of a, of a very underserved uh, market like Southeast Asia. Okay, so let me uh, let me let me try to understand this fully. So so the actual uh, iPad po- point of sale, uh, you know, the the hardware that is basically like sitting next to like the the cash register or whatever for the, much, yeah. for the store owner to keep mm-hmm. track of their inventory and this sort of thing. Absolutely. I got you. Okay. Okay. My, my, my apologies. I was, I was, uh, I was, I was confused uh, to begin with. Okay. Not so, <laughs> so let's talk about a little bit about store hubs, uh, revenue model. Like how do you, uh, what do you charge, um, and this sort of thing? And then what uh, sort of ancillary services do you provide, uh, in addition to just the basic sort of inventory management? Yeah. So we, we have like, uh, a monthly subscription model that's very standard these days, um, ranging anywhere from thirty-nine US dollars a month up to one hundred forty-nine US dollars a month. Um, and essentially, the differences would would be in the kind of uh, the depth of features, so having more advanced inventory management or more sophisticated promotions management. Um, that will be how we differentiate, uh, with, you know, which people pay what, and as well as like the size of uh, the store, so like how many products they would have would typically correlate very well with the with the volume of transactions and therefore the size of the store. Um, so a typical cafe with less than hundred products would typically be paying thirty nine dollars a month, and a larger retail outlet with a thousand or two thousand SKUs will be paying um, you know, maybe seventy nine dollars a month. But that's generally how how we would charge. And then, what sort of uh, uh, how long is the onboarding process if someone wants to you know uh, onboard your your uh, your store hub and implement their into their system? And how what are the metrics that uh, that perhaps a customer can use to to sort of validate the fact that okay you know what this is actually worth uh the 39 bucks a month that i'm paying yeah um so it takes about uh anywhere from so once you go to hardware that's uh, that usually takes like you know either people most of it gets delivered out to customers or people come mm-hmm. and buy it from us pick it up whatever it is it's fairly generic hardware so they don't really uh need to come to us specifically um, but once they have the hardware it takes about Anywhere from a couple of hours for a cafe to set up, uh, you know, just to enter in all the products, you know, the coffee and, and fruit right. and all that stuff. Uh, or if, if it's a larger retailer with like a thousand products, they might have to import that via CSV files and that might take a, a day or two or three days. Um, and, and it depends on, I guess, how much massaging of the data they need to do. Uh, but it's just generally the time frame that's required um, for, for them to get started with us. And uh, as far as the, the key metrics, uh, I think in general, most people are pretty much going from a zero to one um, <laughs> kind of uh, experience, right? right? They, a lot of these guys have not had a system before and now they do. And so the, ex- the, the metrics are very qualitative in this sense, right? They feel, oh my God, I actually have visibility. <laughs> we had customers in the early days. Even okay, So even if they had a system, it would be like, the experience would be like this. They'll be like, um, I need to know what's the sales for today. And they'll call the guy at the store and the guy at the store will take about half an hour to key in that data and, and send out a WhatsApp message uh, to the store owner. And, and that's essentially the experience that they had before where else now with store up, they'll be like, okay, pull out my phone, click, click, boom, here's the, you know, here's the sales report. Mm. Um, so that whole going to the cloud experience, and, and I guess it's, Perhaps a little bit harder to understand in the US where it's, it's things are also progressive and modern. But here in Malaysia, in Southeast Asia, you know, we're talking about a market where 
anywhere between 50 to 90% of retailers don't have a point of sale, don't have a system to begin with. It's all pen and paper. Sure. And so that's essentially uh, where where the majority of our customers would find, I guess, their key metrics. Uh, that being said, I guess most sophisticated retailers would find things like changing pricing of the products or just uh, a general awareness of stock uh, uh, or what's selling best and what's not selling best has helped them to kind of, uh, you know, stock the right things better and therefore, you know, see their sales grow in that sense because they, they actually know and have a good uh, finger on, like a, literally a finger on a pulse kind of understanding of what's going on with their store. Um, but that's generally for the slightly more, I guess, sophisticated retailers. Right. Okay, cool. Yeah, so that that actually uh, makes it much clearer, um, you know, and, and thanks for explaining that to the audience as well. You know, I mean, yeah. uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, you know, I mean, I live in Hong Kong, so it's a little bit more uh, uh, modern and, you know, I grew up in the States. And so uh, the retail experience there is a little bit different, I would think, than probably the initial target market that you're trying to tackle. But um, Southeast Asia, definitely there's a lot of growth there. Um, and, and like you said, 80 to 90 percent is still very old school, like pen and paper yeah. inventory type stuff. So uh, wh- which uh, countries are you in now? Obviously, Malaysia, are you, and you're trying to expand into Southeast Asia. Yeah, so uh, we, our customers are in 15 different countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, But in terms of like our office presence, we, we have offices in Malaysia, in, in, in the Philippines, in Thailand. And we also have an office in, in Shanghai uh, where we, we don't have a sales office there. The, it's primarily a technolo- our technology team is based out of Shanghai. But uh, in, in, in Bangkok, in Manila, in, in Kuala Lumpur, we have uh, sales support offices and a, a whole bunch of other you know, marketing and uh, and, and manufacturing finance and the rest of the, the, I guess, the core operations uh, are based out of Malaysia. Interesting. Okay. Um, so last sort of question on, uh, in, on, your, on what you do there, um, you know, you, as someone that's in, sort of been in retail for a long time, what sort of, sorry, not retail, but more like e-commerce and, and this sort of thing uh, for a while, uh, what, what, what trends do you see, uh, you know, taking place in the next sort of five to 10 years specific to, I want to say Southeast Asia? I mean, do you see a rapid uh, sort of catching up that Southeast Asia is going to have where, um, let's say, StoreHub can go in and basically turn that 80 to 90% number, you know, down to to a more, uh, you know, like a 20, 30, 40% uh, where m- much more retailers are, are online and, and inventory management is, is streamlined. Um, you know, how long do you think that's going to take for, for Southeast Asia to catch up? Yeah, um, I think there are two main trends that we're seeing here. And, mm-hmm. and essentially what we're seeing is a, a huge uh, push for, uh, for, for payments uh, to be a lot, uh, what do you call it? A lot more efficient. And so we're seeing whether that's mobile wallets being pushed in a huge way. I mean, we're talking about this year alone, there's 15 to 20 wallets in the market trying to be the number one player. And, and millions, hundreds of millions of dollars are being pumped into the market to, to, to achieve right. that. Um, and similarly, we're seeing patterns across the region, whether it's in, the, in Thailand, where the banks have all uh, rallied together to, to do uh, you know, uh, mobile payments via bank-to-bank transfers and scanning QR codes uh, at stores itself. Uh, and we're seeing similar moves in the, in, in the Philippines, Indonesia, and a whole bunch of places. So there's definitely going to be a revolution of payments in the next couple of years. Um, a big part of that is is Alibaba, uh, well, Alipay, or N Financial, um, which is, I guess, Alibaba's um, you know, finance kind of arm, right. uh, really investing heavily. You know, they've dumped 
anywhere from 50 to hundreds of millions of dollars into each and every country in Southeast Asia, where uh, specifically in the payments front. So this is something that we're seeing uh, as, a, as a massive shift. Uh, credit card penetration outside of Singapore and Malaysia is very, very, very small. We're talking about a single-digit mm. percentage of the population wow. actually have a credit card. Um, and, and so as a result, there is a massive opportunity for, for mobile wallets to really uh, you know, take a, a play a part in, in, uh, in, how, in the, the kind of shifts and, and the upgrade of how we actually do payments. Uh, so that's something that we're really excited to see. Uh, a big part of that push is also uh, for wallets and payment players to work with people like us who, who already right. have very advanced uh, you know, like, uh, systems in place in retailers because when they work with us, instead of having to onboard merchants in, you know, and providing them devices, uh, we, they literally just, uh, we, we literally just push out a software update and it and it's actually you know, enables mobile payments within the store. Uh, so, so there is definitely a trend and there's a wave that we are, we're seeing that we are happy to, to ride over there. Uh, the second thing that we're seeing as a trend in, in this part of the world is, is the huge push for, for e-commerce and commerce kind of like, uh, and, and I guess the question about what does the future of commerce look like? Um, there is a very strong mall culture in Southeast Asia where whether it's Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand or Indonesia, everyone goes to the mall on a weekend. Mm. And that's, malls are still growing, malls are still doing well in, in, in this part of the world. Uh, and so what does that mean? Uh, what, what, what does it look like for, for uh, you know, do malls you know, still have a part to play as e-commerce grow and, and how what's the rate of growth of e-commerce? Uh, all these are very big question marks out there. That being said, Alibaba has invested $4 billion into, into, into Lazada. Um, mm-hmm. Just recently announced, they right. moved their... Uh, one of the original 18 founders who was one of the top leaders at Alibaba into the region, uh, they are very, very aggressively pushing the e-commerce agenda. So are there opportunities for, for us to, to think about and to philosophize, philosophize about what does it look like for, for this push, this, these resources to, to impact, uh, I guess, the way we understand retail and experiences that people are demanding. I think another consideration is that people don't necessarily have as much spending power or uh, and that's not necessarily changing too dramatically yet. So a lot of the kind of like the first world experiences that uh, pe- you know, startups are trying to pursue in more developed economies may not necessarily apply here. I think there's still a lot of groundwork of foundations and infrastructure work that's needed to be done. And I think uh, that's where as a point of sale player uh, that's trying to understand where to next, you know, whether that's payments, e-commerce or whatever or not, uh, we recognize that our role fundamentally is to start by connecting these stores to whatever needs to be connected in the, in, in the future by placing the iPad in store. We are setting these stores up for success as the, as the world of commerce evolves. So that's how we're seeing it um, play out for the, you know, hopefully in the next couple of years, we'll see more of this cool stuff materialize. Yeah, absolutely. It's such an exciting time. You know, uh, you mentioned Alibaba several times and, and um, you know, before we wrap up, I, I want to just talk to you very quickly about um, the Alibaba eFounders program. So, uh, you know, you obviously are a, uh, you know, one of the 500 startups uh, investments and, um, you know, through our, uh, our mutual friends, um, you know, I was introduced to you and uh, I want to just ask you a little bit about the eFounders program. You know, were, were there any key takeaways that you learned? How, what was the experience like? You know, anything that you might want to share with the audience based on your experience through that program? Ooh, um, <laughs> we've done panels. <laughs> we've talked for, for like an hour on this specifically. But the key takeaways for me, um, 
Alibaba is intense. I mean, you're talking about a company, 60,000 people, massive footprint, mm. uh, 60,000 employees is what I mean. Right. Massive footprint across China, really trying to go out into the world, uh, stacks and stacks and stacks of cash. Uh, but most importantly, you know, we, we saw how a single company over a period of just, just under 20 years managed to kind of like uh, really change the entire landscape of how commerce is done in China. Uh, and the methodology and the way they thought about it. And, it, it's you know, we talk about philosophy quite a bit today, um, but one of the comments I heard uh, from a senior executive at Alibaba when I was there was that, uh, you know, and this is like an ex-consultant guy. He's gone and worked in all the different American companies and, 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 and multi, multinational conglomerates, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. He said this is the only company, referring to Alibaba, that is, that is managed by philosophy. Um, and that was a really, really such a weird statement to make. Like, huh. what does that even mean? And, and as we understood more about Alibaba's culture and, and how Tai Chi is a big part of their culture and how Jack spends hours, like he'll, he'll go and talk to his team for three or four hours at a time. Wow. And, and, you know, the, the, the approach where they, they would talk about how we will, we will build a company uh, that is that has a healthy, you know, again, the whole yin and yang of Tai Chi, right? A balance of Western management principles, right. but Eastern philosophies uh, combined. And that's how we're going to be. That's our management philosophy. And so it's such a, such a fascinating kind of insight into, into the way that Alibaba has transformed hmm. uh, an entire country uh, through a kind of like methodology that is very, fairly unorthodox. You know, you don't often hear things like that said. Sure. Um, and at the same time, to be kind of like uh, a little bit, um, I'm not sure what's the right word to use here, but it kind of a little bit scared, right? Like a bit, a bit, a bit. You know, there's this this company is now huge and they're ambitious. And one of Jack Ma's plans was was literally globalization in the next year. What you know, uh, and what does that look like? Mm. And uh, he he openly said that look, you know, uh, one of Alibaba's uh, globalization is is top three on Alibaba's agenda for the next year. And we got we and one of the things that's really really important to us is that we need to succeed in Southeast Asia. We need to show the world that we can influence this region in a positive way, bring commerce, make you know their, uh, make commerce, uh, make doing business easier in, in Southeast Asia. And he's done a lot of work with uh, with all the different governments, uh, and so at a, both at the private and the public sector, we're seeing Alibaba investing heavily. Uh, so there's just so much that's going on there uh, that they they are not. Uh, content, uh, just being a country, uh, no, a company that's that's super relevant in China, uh, they are obviously very, very uh, focused on on uh, expanding and, and figuring out what it means to to have an influence in the world. So that's something that that's uh, that's <laughs> somewhat new to me. Like before going there, I was like, you know, we thought Alibaba is kind of king of China, but right. don't really understand or know much about their foreign policy. Uh, but this is definitely a very very insightful in that sense. Very interesting, very insightful. Thank you for sharing, uh, Wai Hong. It's been such a pleasure, man. Uh, thanks for coming on and sharing your experience, uh, and uh, you know, uh, and sharing with us about you know, the exciting things that you're doing at StoreHub. We're definitely going to keep an eye out on you and uh, and look forward to hearing the great progress that you make. Uh, and, uh, and we wish you the best of luck. So thanks again. All right. Thanks, Jay, for having me. All right. Take care. Bye. All right. Thanks. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. All the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com. 
come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under 3 hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness.